Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This week we're celebrating the women of Chatham House and those in international relations. With me in the studio are some of the many brilliant researchers who work at the Institute and I'm going to be talking to them about their experiences working in global affairs and their advice for those wanting to do that. We'll also be discussing India. On Monday, we hosted Rahul Gandhi, a leading Indian politician, former president of the Indian National Congress. We'll discuss what he had to say about India's relations with China, its internal quandaries, and perceptions almost a decade on from the 2014 election that brought Narendra Modi and the BJP to power. Joining me in the studio this week, and it's a packed studio and we're all here, are Dr. Mukulika Banerjee, until recently the director of the LSE's South Asia Centre. Welcome. Thank you. Great to have you. And as well, some very familiar voices from previous episodes. Rashmin Sagur, the director of our international law program. Hello again. Hello. Good morning. Great to have you here. Anna Aubrey from our environment and society program. Hi. Hi, Bronwyn. Amida Van Rai from our international security program. Welcome back. Hi, Bronwyn. And joining us for the first time is Isabella Wilkinson, a research associate on the International Security Programme, also at Chatham House. Welcome to the podcast. Excited to be here. Great to have you all here. We've just had the uh, introductory photograph, which we will will (laughs) use on this. Um, Well, let's start with International Women's Day. March 8th marks that day, and we have many women who work on international affairs here at Chatham House. Quick round the houses. What did you all do on that day, which was Wednesday? Rushman. Oh, I celebrated a little bit with my son, who's 10, and a, and a very big supporter of women's rights and uh, of his, his little friends uh, who are um, his best friend's a girl, and he's always promoting her. And we also <laughs> celebrated Holi, which is uh, uh, our festival of colour. And I went to a brilliant event at the uh, Aspen Institute and with the EU delegation on International Women's Day. Anna. I celebrated by doing lots of work on international climate politics here at Chatham House. Um, I actually attended the event that Rashman just spoke about. It was brilliant. And as always with these things, my favorite part was the networking reception. It was just super energizing and everyone was really excited about the event itself, which was on women shaping policy narratives, rewriting the rule book. And yeah, it was just kind of the midweek boost of energy that you really need. And it was, of course, International Women's Day, which makes it that much better. In similar vein to Anna, I also celebrated by doing my work on um, NATO and how it should prepare for climate security, which is a really exciting report that's going to come out um, in a few months' time. And as a special International Women's Day um, element, I treated my dog and I to a very rainy and wet walk. (laughs) (laughs) I had a long day at work, uh, but also multitask in the way that modern women are expected to. Worked a 12-hour day, went to the gym, cooked dinner, and read some more. Oh, you're making me feel guilty. I had to look up what I was doing then. And it, it seems a very long time ago I went out for a long discussion uh, with Patricia Lewis, who heads up our international security program and has been acting deputy director here uh, about all kinds of uh, internal things and then worked on our Britain program. Okay, that's all of us. Makalika, let me start with you. We've got some brilliant colleagues here. You're in academia. What would you say are the challenges facing women? I think all young women, like all indeed all young men, are entering academia. It's a difficult time, especially in the UK at the moment, because academic work and jobs have got very precarious. That's why the unions are on strike um, this year already several times. Um, and especially for women, I think it is, there's no denying 
that for all as for all young people, childcare costs are so high. Britain has the most expensive childcare in the world, according to OECD numbers. People are paying more for childcare than for their mortgages. And this does impact on how you do your job, which basically means you self-exploit more, you work many, many longer hours. So you've got to, it comes from very passionate people to enter academia who do it despite the challenges. Just want to ask you on the childcare, does some of the elements of flexibility in academia, is that some help? It is a help for the institutions we work for, but it's not of help to ourselves because we work around that flexibility, which means you work when children are asleep, you cook before anyone's awake and so on. Rashmin, how did you come into choosing international law? I suppose it was an unconventional route. It was um, me trying to follow my interests of uh, international affairs, law and justice, public service, um, and also my wider world. So international law seemed to combine those areas, but I sort of stumbled into it. What about bringing more women into that? It's a good question because actually law itself is quite a closed group. International law is a closed group and international relations are closed areas. So where we advertise posts, gender neutral drafting in in job adverts, for example, these are all really important ways of getting women in. But when they're in, there are challenges that have just been mentioned, actually, which also relate to difficult choices between deciding to have a meaningful career but also a fulfilling family life and uh, you know having time for your children so that issue of high quality flexible childcare is super important um, and also absences from the workplace for reasons of maternity and uh, parenting and then returning to work particularly for women who are on leadership track and trying to re-enter and re-establish their reputations is, is really tricky. I'll come back to some of those points. Almeida, international security can feel very male-dominated. I went to the Munich Security Conference and I walked into a wall of um, dark jackets, it felt like. Um, what, what uh, Even these days, uh, actually many women leaders in uh, very bright colours, but, but the overall impression was not that. What's your experience been? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's exactly right. The number of times that I've walked into a room of just men and you kind of stand out as the blonde woman in the room is is quite something. Um, I think there's unfortunately still this perception that, or the stereotyping really, that women work on, in quotation marks, soft issues like development and peace building and things like that, whereas men do the hard, again, quotation marks, issues like WMDs and arms control and all of that. And that's a really big challenge and it's quite structural because it means that women continue to be less respected um, when they work on those harder security issues and they continue to have less visibility and that obviously has impacts on career, on legitimacy, on being recognised in the field, etc. I mean, I think, you know, when we talk about the the international security or global affairs being a male-dominated sector, I think that's really true and this is one of the ways in which that is sector specific, because um, obviously tech is very male dominated, engineering is very male dominated, but this makes it particularly challenging for women who try to break into that field um, in particular. And obviously a lot of the contacts, um, it can be in the military, which is itself uh, tends to be. There's obviously a lot of progress for women recently in the mm. military. But. What I will say about the military though, and I don't, um, I don't want to uh, 
uh, gender wash <laughs> any of their work. Um, but what I have found is, based on my interactions with the military, and, and I, I don't just mean in a UK context, they're very good at taking you at face value. So if you say something that's sound analysis, and if it's good, they will respect you and they will take your word for it and they will engage with you. If you're off the mark, forget about it. But actually, I found that quite different than if you look at academia or the third sector or government, where people seem to care quite a lot about ranks and job titles and that kind of thing. Um, so I have, and there's a lot of challenges in the military that need to be addressed when it comes to diversity, don't get me wrong. But I do think that that's one element where actually I found it quite enjoyable working with armed forces um, across the globe. That's right. In my experience, I give talks to senior women women military leaders quite, quite often. And I think if they've got to that level, mm. they have a degree of confidence and ability to operate there. But there are lots and lots of problems, particularly as we've read extensively at the at the, at the lower levels and, and some of the culture, which I'm not going to brush over. Anna, does it feel different in climate change? I think when it comes to climate change, it's so clear that it's everybody's um, business. It's it's not just like one sector, one profession that needs to, to tackle this. Um, we need lawyers on board. Uh, civil servants, people in think tanks, uh, climate scientists. So it's a very broad field in that way. And I think uh, what my advice would be to uh, to women wishing to working on climate change issues would be to have a think about what your skills set and what your interests are, and then kind of take it from from there. Because we do really need all hands hands on board. Elizabeth, I want to come to you now because the actual subject of your work, gender and cybersecurity and, and questions of that, the actual subject of what you're writing about is very much you know, concerned with this. What is it that you're working on now? Can you take us into that? Yes, yeah, sure. Happy to go into this and, you know, really thrilled to be on this podcast and speaking about these issues, particularly around International Women's Day. I mean, I think I can speak for the whole cyber policy team here at Chatham House when we say gender considerations and gender mainstreaming into cyber policy, into cyberspace is a key priority for us. And a huge part of our work is actually around unlearning and debunking a set of myths which have really plagued the field of cyber policy when it comes to thinking about gender and inclusivity. Um, one of our researchers, Amrit Swali, has been leading a lot of really important thinking around this. I won't go into all of them, but a lot of our work, research, thinking in this space focuses on, for example, removing the association of gender issues with primarily women's issues. We can't synonymize women and gender, and doing so has incredibly harmful effects, particularly when we're thinking about the field of cyber policy. Um, another myth that we're working to dispel, not just in our research, but I think in our, the makeup of our team and where our careers have taken us to get to this place, is that cybersecurity is not just a technical and male-dominated field. Someone from the outside might think, okay, you're talking about gender and cybersecurity. Is that about keeping women safe online? But it's more than that, isn't it? Definitely. I think that it's really important as a starting point to recognize that different genders will experience cyberspace in different ways. And this applies for the risks and harms incurred in cyberspace, but also the opportunities. So we can't only have a pessimistic outlook here. Um, I think it's also important to, again, as another starting point, recognize that gender equality and gender diversity is a cyber policy issue. It's an international security issue. And again, I think this speaks to my earlier point about making sure that we're not relegating issues relating to cybersecurity to the technical sphere. It's a social issue. It's a policy issue. And I think that really gets to the heart of what mainstreaming is. Really well put. And thank you for just brought it, it out in that, in that way for us. 
Let's just all talk a bit about then the challenges for women coming to do the kind of things uh, that we've all been discussing. You've uh, all um, we've been touching on on um, on childcare, on some of the cultural battles and so on. What kind of advice would you give people? Just off the bat, um, I read this great book a few years ago that was recommended um, by a group of women. I should say, I think it was called Feminist Fight Club or something like that. <laughs> and there's this great chapter on it, which I think is is called "What Would Josh Do." And Josh is your average male who seems to get all the credit for all the work, but never actually does any of the work, etc. Um, and there was the, the the point the book was basically making is just just have more confidence and just position yourself in particular ways. And I think there is something we know this from um, from lots of different studies and, and evidence that's been produced that women are less likely to step out of their comfort zone when it comes to their areas of expertise. And therefore, when it comes to accepting media interviews or any kind of issues that deal with visibility, they're less likely to get that visibility because they hold themselves back. They censor themselves. So I think there is a point around backing yourself you are very likely, if you're asked to do something, it's very likely that actually you're recognised in that field. Um, I'm not saying we need to all wing it because that that's dangerous, um, but just having a little bit more confidence and and speaking to colleagues, engaging with yourself. Um, I think the other thing that I would add to that is what I found really great in my field in international security and conflict is that there's been these great communities of women developing um kind of informally, um, one of them being Women in International Security UK, which I was on the leadership team of um, until quite recently. And then now I'm on the advisory group of is how I met Alice Villon-Galland, who's not a great researcher at Chatham House. Bella is now on the leadership team. Anyway, that's a really great supportive community of women. And we all, it provides this wonderful little safe bubble where we all support each other and uplift mm -hmm. each other and we draw on each other's work and we kind of raise our voices um, to use to use that term. Um, but so I think it is finding those pockets of security and safety and support mm -hmm. um, and backing yourself. Great. I'm really glad you said that. Um, Rushman. Um, I, I would definitely agree with the, the importance of those networks and that peer support. I guess I'd also uh, mention uh, the idea for, for women entering into international law, for example, they need to be open minded and flexible about your about one's career, that it's not just, international law isn't just about the intellectual rigor and the analytical skills needed, but there's a wider skill set that's needed in terms of people relationships, communication, negotiation skills, being able to work in a team and lead a team. So it, it's just to be a little bit flexible um, and that certain times in your career, you might have to take a different, like maybe it, what seems like a sidestep, but actually you're still gaining a lot of skills in the process. And when you look at the your overall life cycle of your career, the whole long-term view of your career, it will actually naturally flow into one another. And the second point I, I, I thought of was actually, I think we've got a role, particularly as women leaders, to actually try to de-glamorize burnout culture and the work mm. hard culture, mm -hmm. because I think it can be really negative. And I know organizations certainly from friends in academia as well that I have the institutions don't actually enable that to happen but there is something about all of us recognizing that the sort of disease of busyness creates disease and we need to collectively re remember the lessons from the pandemic of well-being and mental health and really taking that long view so that we can have fulfilling careers and balance the rest of our lives also. Mm. I think just following on from that, um, because academia now has relies so much on short-term contracts and there's a precarious workforce, 
and it's also made people in um, long-term contracts a lot more competitive because of the way incentive structures have changed in British universities. What this has meant is that the space for creating solidarities with with other women, for citing each other's work, actually there's some material things you can do to support each other, which I find not all senior women do. And I think you know, there's a responsibility that women who are further along in their careers, especially with permanent contracts, have towards their younger female colleagues, which we could do a lot more of. Uh, there is a gender, gender pay gap. There are battles to be fought um, around gender issues, uh, which require suppressing, you know, your naked self-interest in, in for, for a wider group. And, and we need a lot more of that. One tip, Anna. I really agree what, uh, with what others have uh, said. And I, I do think it's really important to believe in yourself and um, have the courage to to say what you think and provide your analysis. Um, in addition to that, I would just add, perhaps speaking from my own experience, that it helps to have a good boss. This mm-hmm. isn't just true for <laughs> for women, but for men as well. I can imagine um, one of the most important things in my career to date um, happened when I was interning at the Ministry for Foreign Affairs. Um, and I was 23 years old, uh, come straight from university, didn't really have a lot of work experience. I worked at a fishmonger's earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and I, um, I had this amazing uh, boss who really uh, saw me and who uh, gave me interesting tasks and who let me brief the heads of the department. And it boosted my confidence uh, a lot and it enabled me to to say what I I thought and to um, have the courage to do that. And that in turn led to a job there afterwards. So, um, well, I guess for both men and women, especially early on in your careers, uh, try to surround yourself and especially work for people who who see you and who try to progress you in your career. That's a really important point. Pick your Pick your boss well. I realise there's not much you can do about it with me sitting right here. <laughs> Thank you for the very warm welcome you have given me in the past six months. Uh, Bella, what, what do you think? Um, yeah, I think I would echo what, I mean, really everyone has said already in that it's so important to find, you know, role models, I think, who are senior to you, but also role models who can be your peers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, through networks like Women in International Security, there's also Women of Colour Advancing Peace of Security, Minorities in Peace and Security, Women in Think Tanks, a whole variety of different professional networks. They, as Armida mentioned, create the space to just be constantly inspired and challenged by other women in your field. And I think that is such a massive source of energy, particularly when you're coming up against challenges related to your work or your work-life balance. Um, So I think that would be the first thing. Um, The second general piece of advice would be, I think, not overextending yourself. Mm -hmm. Really, I mean, okay, I think this is (laughs) probably easy to say and not so easy to do. Um, And really picking where you want to make your unique impact and infusing this with a sense of, I think, duty and purpose to the women that are going to come after you. Never forgetting advocacy. Once you get a seat at the table, build a bigger table, yank the door open to make sure that more people of diverse identities can be around the table as well. Um, so I think those would be the two things for me. Probably easier said than done. <laughs> really, really interesting. And I hadn't planned to say anything in this. I was just fascinated by your views. But as you're talking, it, it, it makes me think of a, a few things. One, I, I started off as an investment analyst way back. And 
and was tempted by journalism, which I ultimately went, went into. But um, the reason I stuck as an investment analyst was because even if you were 20, if you sat up all night with the numbers, people much older um, would have to listen in the morning if you got the numbers right. And that, that, <laughs> that, that, that took me a long way of having something with a very demonstrable um, argument and case or you know, value to what, what, what I was doing. And the point about pick your, your boss well, I think, is really a good one. People did me a lot of favors, both in the beginning and then when I came to have a, a, a child. I was foreign editor at the Times and, and was a single parent. And um, I was really, really grateful for the flexibility given. And some employers will and some don't. And actually hard to know until you, until you come to that point. But it really does matter. The third thing, I think I, I moderate and chair a lot of panels, ours, other people's. And I do find it um, sad still how women's hands do not go up mm, mm. early. They, get, they, they do go up, but and you can see what's happening. People are, th women are sitting there and they're thinking, they're listening to the discussion and they're listening to the other questions and then they put their hand up quite late but by that time the moderators quite often got a long list of who's going to speak and it's harder to get them in and it's really hard sometimes, not in every discussion, but sometimes to get the, the early comments and, and then often preceded by, well other people have made my points already and I, I wish um, if I could, there's one thing I could sort of bestow on the audiences of these things, it would be confidence to, to have your voice as we've been saying. I've, I've heard that actually, if if the woman if a woman um, participant goes first in the audience, it really opens the door. There's research to show that other women will speak up. I think that is. I think there is evidence on that, and we try really hard on that. I just have to say, it's off. It's 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 astonishing how often there is no um, hand from a woman going up at the at the beginning. Actually, online moderating helps a bit because people you can get in questions mm. that way. And I think this speaks to a broader point about um, what meaningful participation and inclusion looks like going beyond women and gender. Because fine, the events that you're talking about are in a particular setting where they're panel events and there's a large audience. But actually in kind of roundtables or workshops, what we are seeing a lot, at least in, in defence and security, is a lot of kind of paying lip service and, and ticking boxes of great. You know, we had 40% of participants or attendees were women. Excellent. Tap ourselves on the back. But were they actually able to participate? Were they empowered to have a voice in the discussion? Were their voices listened to and heard? And that's the other thing where it's like, what if if we just have them at the table, but they don't speak? Honestly, there's there's no point. It doesn't make it any different. Um, so what does meaningful inclusion and meaningful participation look like? Because when fundamentally we know, if we just look at the state of the world today, it's a more volatile world. There are threats to democracy. There are serious security challenges. And we're not going to solve those by just speaking to the same people. So we need to have those inclusive debates. And I should stress that we obviously want to include all kinds of people and voices mm. and yeah. everything. We're focusing on women because it has been International Women's mm. Day. But obviously our drive for inclusion and our passion about it goes much, much wider. Let's pivot now to our second conversation, which is about Rahul Gandhi, who came to Chatham House this week and discussed the many challenges facing India. This is what he had to say. One way of looking at India is that it's a country. And another way of looking at it is that it is a negotiation between uh, 1.4 billion people, right? And that negotiation, um, if you imagine India, um, in terms of numbers, it's probably three times Europe, three times the United States. 
Um, it's probably got as many languages as Europe does. Uh, it's certainly got as many histories as Europe does. And that negotiation is a complex negotiation. And that negotiation happens, it doesn't happen um, out in the streets. It happens through institutions. It happens through the parliament, it happens through assemblies, it happens through the courts, it happens through the election commission, right? And my worry is that the architecture of that negotiation is being attacked and broken, right? Um, and you can see, you can see sort of the symptoms, right? Um, the prime minister one day turns around and demonetizes the entire currency, right? The, the Reserve Bank doesn't know about it. And he's, everything has been bypassed on something as fundamental as the currency of the country. That's an example. And it's the same way the GST was worked out. Right? So you can see that, that the reliance on those institutions is reducing. And that to me is, a, is, is very, very dangerous. Mukulika, Rahul Gandhi spoke a lot about the domestic challenges facing India, particularly the economic challenges. What's your view of it? Yeah, first, Perhaps we should note that when asked by somebody in the audience what he would do, the one point he, uh, agenda that he would have, he said the violence against women in India mm -hmm. is, is terrible. He heard many stories while he did this long walk across the country, and that would be something he prioritized, which um, I can't remember the last time I heard a male politician say that about any country, so that was reassuring. Um, but I thought he actually was quite restrained in his criticism of what is uh, and concern about what is happening in India. He alluded to, for instance, the weaponizing of um, various agencies. And what, what he was talking about, of course, was the use of, of tax raids and other enforcement agencies in suppressing not just dissent, but any and not just criticism of the government, but any evidence-based, fact-based analysis of the Indian economy, of Indian politics. Um, and this, for a vibrant democracy the size of India, is a serious concern. Facts are no longer being collected. The census has been um, indefinitely postponed. Uh, basic figures about the Indian economy are no longer available. So any judgment about the Indian economy is made from facts and figures that are being collected um, incidentally by various non-governmental organizations. So India's arsenal of statistics that always used to exist, even in its bleakest moments, uh, simply does not. The majoritarianism, another point that he didn't talk about, which, uh, which I mean, what he did say is already getting him a lot of grief on, on uh, social media from the trolls anyway, but the majoritarianism of Indian democracy, uh, where the insecurity of the minority Muslim population is absolutely horrifying. There is no day where you can open Twitter and not be confronted by a video clip of a Muslim being lynched. Mm. Uh, not only are people being lynched, but they are filmed and then put out on social media as some sort of badge of honor for greater accolades. And so the precarity, the absolute... Um, decline of democratic standards in India, which I think he was quite right to 
point out that this had serious repercussions for democratic standards anywhere in the world. This is sixth of the world's population lives there. Um, and therefore, it's not just an Indian issue. It is an Indian. It's an issue for democracy everywhere in the world. And you're writing a book on democracy at the moment based partly on interviews in India. That's right. right. It's called Cultivating Democracy. Yeah. And your concern, just briefly, about the state of Indian democracy, which came out very loudly in the questions and is obviously part of the interest of, of any conversation about India at the moment, um, your concern is running fairly high. It is. I'm very concerned because as we approach the next general elections in 2024, the polarization of the Indian population seems to be going up. The suppression of dissent, academic research, academic freedom is in, in complete peril. Um, and the economy, we have heard the big stories about two or three friends of the prime minister who've done exceptionally well. But it's also the, you know, the more small and medium industries have closed in this past year than in the last four years together. So the a average entrepreneur, small enterprise in India that actually drives economic growth and creates jobs, uh, that is slowing down. And that is of huge concern. And any concern expressed about this by people who care about India, you know, regardless of political party, people who care about India and Indian society, is immediately shut down and criticized and, and harassed. And that is worrying. Well, this is part of a conversation we want to have with the uh, Modi government uh, and, its, and its ministers. Um, Amido and Bella, um, there was um, some discussion of India's place in the region's security and the very tense relations with China and obviously with Pakistan. What is your assessment of it? Yeah. Um, so in, uh, in the foreign policy sphere, India pursues Indian interests and it very much has a policy of strategic autonomy. Um, it has very long-standing historical ties with Russia and we've seen that play out very clearly in uh, India's stance on the war in Ukraine with abstaining from UN General Assembly votes, etc. Um, but in reality, it gets most of its armory and weapons from Russia. Um, it's heavily reliant on Russia for energy sources, etc. At the same time, we also shouldn't forget that it shares borders with two what it would see as hostile um, nuclear powers, India, uh, sorry, Pakistan and China. Um, and to try and provide its own security guarantees, I suppose. Um, it therefore has a partnership with the US. I deliberately say partnership rather than alliance, because I think India is a very good example of a middle power um, in a multipolar world, um, trying to vie for its own interests, essentially, as we've talked about on the podcast before. Um, so it is trying to counter China in the region and therefore has partnership with the US and Australia. Um, if I could maybe just jump in quickly on the uh, cyber angle to this, as I, as I usually do. Um, it's really interesting to see how India's posturing as a regional security player on the international stage, but also in terms of its national security, is reflected in the cyber context. I mean, at the national and international level, you see the ways in which India is increasingly using cyberspace to achieve its strategic objectives, mm. whether this is from a national security perspective in using internet shutdowns to quell civil unrest, uh, which is a very, very key issue and definitely on the rise. Whether this is India's posturing in international UN processes for rules of the road for cyberspace and countering international cybercrime. I won't go into everything now, but I think it's important to never forget that cyber element. Hmm. 
we can only do uh, I'm, I'm trying to get in a, a snippet of how this is touching your work and your thinking at the at the moment we can't do justice to the complexity of uh, questions about Indian democracy now but we will at some point Anna yeah, no, I um, uh, I focus on international climate politics and uh, the interna- and the UN climate negotiations here at Chatham House. So maybe just to come in from that uh, angle, and India does play an interesting and important role in that space, not least this year when they're chairing the G20. And I do really see a role and an opportunity for India to use that position to uh, put pressure and encourage the G20 members to raise ambition on climate change. Um, So that's one area to watch. Another area to watch this year when it comes to climate change in India is that at COP27, which was the last UN climate change summit, which took place in Egypt last year, uh, India kind of led a push to push for more ambitious language on phasing down all fossil fuels in COP decision text. Uh, And that was, uh, in the end, backed by a coalition of over 80 countries. It didn't make it into the outcome, but there is an opportunity here again for India to to push that agenda forward ahead of COP28 in Sharm el-Sheikh. Ashman. In terms of my my take-homes from the Rahul Gandhi event um, and in the context of International Women's Day, I guess the... Like Mukulika, the the thing that really struck me were these stories that he spoke about women who joined him on his yatra walk um, across India, who were incredibly courageous and brave in actually sharing these horrific stories of rape and sexual and gender-based violence um, and saying that they wouldn't feel comfortable reporting it to the police or their families for fear of shame and retribution. Um, And then, I guess, bringing that in the UK context where we're still having... uh, these debates post the Sarah Everard murder where women in this country also don't feel safe mm. to report um, to the police. So this is a, there's a global, there's a global issue here. Um, the other point that occurred to me from the, from the talk was that, you know, in these tough and dark times, people are really looking for new kinds of leadership. They're looking for thoughtful, empathetic, inclusive leadership styles where people really listen and that I think really came came through um, and maybe that's what captured people's hearts and imaginations from a human rights perspective you know there's been so much regression globally in recent years but we are hearing these voices that we have women's voices strong women's voices coming through different um, in, in coming through in different ways whether it's through the voices from uh, Rahul Gandhi or through uh, the Iran protests, for example, also, I think as policymakers and researchers for us in think tanks and academia, that hearing those local women's voices is extremely important. So building in that localization agenda into our work is something we really need to think about. Well, look, thank you for all those um, tastes of what is on your mind about this. Obviously, a fantastically complex and important subject, which we will return to and, and look in full at the... Um, pressures and and many successes of the Modi government and and yet the controversy that that is stirring up. But we are going to have to stop then. So a big thank you to my guests, Dr. Mukulika Banerjee from the LSE. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. And here from Chatham House, Rushman Sagu, Anna Aubrey, Amida Van Rai, Isabella Wilkinson. Do follow them all on Twitter. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major podcast platforms, as well as through our social media. So do like, follow, subscribe. Please do leave us a review. I always ask that. We always like it, whatever you say, (laughs) to read more from our experts or to find out more about our events or to become a member, and we would love to have you. 
don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org. You can find the recent work there of our environment, law, security programs, and lots more. And you can find the entire Rahul Gandhi event on our website, as well as our work on Nigeria's recent election and interviews with women serving as UN peacekeepers in South Sudan, Lebanon, and beyond. Next week is Budget Week here in the UK, also the Integrated Review, finally, it seems. So we'll be turning to look at the UK's place in the world with diplomat-turned-podcaster Arthur Snell. Goodbye from me, Bronwyn Maddox. Thank you for listening. <laughs>